Over the past several years, a group of scientists has made news as a result of their advocacy of a theory of the origin of life that's called intelligent design. Perhaps many of you have heard of it. A number of books and articles have been written that challenge the Darwinian notion that what we see came about by random mutations. Rather, the intelligent design scientists maintain that the observable evidence points to unmistakable, purposeful design. And, of course, the Bible agrees with those scientists. The universe does indeed show evidence everywhere of intelligent design. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In your New Testament, Romans chapter 1 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature had been clearly seen, understood from what has been made. So when scientists recognize intelligent design, we consider that, we should consider that a good thing. But hear this. Recognizing intelligent design is not enough. You see... It's not the idea of design that's the real problem. Everybody can see design and purpose in the universe. What makes people deny it is not a lack of evidence. It's that once you admit the world is designed, you have to deal with the designer. Because in all likelihood, he's still around. And so people find ways to deny design. Many are in denial regarding that issue. Rather than deal with the designer, they'll deny the obvious, concoct theories to support their denial, and they'll castigate anyone who questions their so-called science. So, for instance, Richard Dawkins, atheist, scientist, and author of numerous books, including The Blind Watchmaker and The God Delusion, said this, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But then he goes on to vehemently deny that they in fact were designed, appearances notwithstanding. Yet another of the in-denial crowd was the infamous 18th century French skeptic and infidel Voltaire. Voltaire boasted that as a result of the work that he and others were doing, within a hundred years of his life, all memory of Jesus Christ and the Bible would be erased from the earth. God has a sense of humor. Fifty years after Voltaire died, a Bible society purchased his house, set up shop, and began printing copies of the Word of God there. During his lifetime, Voltaire confessed that despite the multitude of writings explaining his infidelity and his faithlessness, he was embarrassed by one thing, a simple watch. During the message this morning, we'll learn why this well-educated, well-written infidel was embarrassed as he thought about the intricacy of a watch. So most are in denial regarding the fact that the universe is the product of intelligent design. But indeed, there are others who are honest enough to admit design, but they still can't stomach the idea of having a designer with whom to reckon. In 1986, Sir Fred Hoyle, a British scientist who was awarded the Dag 
Hammarskjöld Gold Medal for Science. It's named after the Swedish diplomat and former UN Secretary General. He also won the Crawford Prize from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, the Klumke Roberts Award of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, the Royal Medal, the Bruce Medal, and the Gold Medal of the Royal Astronomical Society. He's a renowned man of science and one whose theories I was taught in college. And Hoyle ran the numbers to determine the mathematical probability of the basic enzymes of life arising from random processes. He concluded that the odds were one in one, followed by 40,000 zeros. Or, as he said, so utterly minuscule as to make Darwin's theory of evolution absurd. Hoyle said, quote, a common sense interpretation of the facts is that a super intellect has monkeyed, no pun intended, I don't, I don't think, a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. His calculations from the facts, he said, quote, seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond question. And yet Hoyle is a professing atheist. So what is the explanation according to this brilliant, and he is brilliant, atheist? Hoyle came up with the theory called panspermia, which holds that life began in space and spread to Earth by a steady influx of microscopic infectious agents delivered to Earth on comets. You see, admitting intelligent design does not mean you identify the designer. The same motivation that causes people to deny design causes those who recognize it to posit a false designer. Francis Crick, winner of the Nobel Prize for his co-discovery of DNA, he also realized that the spontaneous evolution of life could not be reconciled with the facts. And he said, the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make it absurd. Consequently, Crick hypothesized, and here was his explanation. Did he fall on his knees before Jesus and thank him for making the world? No, here's his explanation. Highly intelligent extraterrestrials sent living cells to Earth on an unmanned spaceship. It's a theory he set forth in his 1981 book, Life Itself. And thus, whew, that was close. We almost had to believe in God. And friends, this is why the Bible is not content that we simply recognize the world as having been wonderfully and purposefully designed. It is not enough to simply prove a designer. Everyone knows that, and those who deny it are in denial. It's not enough to simply recognize and prove the designer. We must know who the designer is. And so our message this morning is titled, The Intelligent Designer. We introduced the book of John last week, and we saw that John's purpose, according to chapter 20 and verse 31 of this book, is that his readers would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
and to accomplish this task of demonstrating that Jesus is the promised one. He's the Christ. John is going to give in this book seven signs that point to who Jesus is. And the first 18 verses of the first chapter of the book of John are an introduction to who Jesus is with the proof then to follow. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Jesus is God. We saw that last week. Today we're going to see from verse 3 that Jesus is our creator. He's the intelligent designer. And he is therefore also our Lord. I invite you to follow along with the outline that we provided for you on the back of your program. We see in Scripture, first of all, that Jesus created the universe. And this is a well-attested fact Throughout Scripture. Notice what the Bible says. In referring to Jesus Christ, it says, For by him all things were created. And then, as if that isn't enough to say that all things were created by him, the passage goes on to say, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The author of the book of Hebrews describes the fact that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation, his communication to man. And he says in Hebrews chapter one in verse two. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Chapter one and verse three of John's gospel says Through him, all things were made. Now, how many things are there in the universe? The way that this is worded, it's saying not that the universe in general was just created by him, but he created every specific thing that makes up our universe. How many things are there? It's been estimated that there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least a hundred million galaxies in known space. Einstein wrote that he believed that in his time with our largest telescopes, we had surveyed only one billionth of theoretical space. According to Einstein's estimation, there would be about 10 octillion stars. How much is that? You know that a thousand thousands make up a million. And a thousand millions make up a billion, a thousand billions make up a trillion, a thousand trillions are a quadrillion, a thousand quadrillions are a quintillion, a thousand quintillions are a sextillion, a thousand sextillions are a septillion, and a thousand septillions are an octillion. Just say it's a lot. I mean, how large is, of a number is ten octillion? It's ten with 27 zeros behind it. Now, it's still smaller than the probability that evolution is true, but still, it's a big number. And John boldly asserts that the one whom we know as Jesus Christ made them all. Isaiah tells us that he calls them all by name. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. Jesus created them all. The Bible teaches us that he not only created them all, but he created them all, as we say in your outline, immediately. We use that word immediately often to mean quickly, but that's the next point in your outline. 
where we say it's instantaneous. What's the difference between immediate and instantaneous? Immediate means without mediation. God created directly without the mediation of a process or of pre-existing materials. Theologians have an expression to describe the creative work of God through Jesus Christ. It's creation ex nihilo. It's a Latin term and it simply means out of nothing. We really can't comprehend nothingness, can we? If you just try to do it, just try to think of it. If you're trying to explain nothing to somebody. And you just had a, you know, a whiteboard or a blackboard and you just drew a circle and you say inside the circle is nothing. Yeah, but you've got to get rid of the circle. Okay, erase the circle. But yeah, you've got to get rid of the chalkboard too. I mean, you just really can't do that, can you? Out of nothing. And in the Greek, there are two ways to express being or to be. One of them means to exist. And the other means to come into being. In last week's passage, when John said, in the beginning was the word, in verse number one, he used the former. That is, in the beginning existed Jesus Christ. But here in verse three, we have the other term. Through him, all things were brought into being. He created out of nothing. It's a way of saying that there was a time when all that is now was not. It's a way of saying that there was a time when all that God That God was all that existed in the universe. It's a way of saying that all that is was created out of nothing. No one can comprehend that. It's a mystery that's rooted in the creative power of Almighty God. As we begin to study mass matter, we find that things we consider to be universal are made up of millions of smaller units called molecules. And then as our understanding began to progress, we found that those molecules are made up of smaller units called atoms. And then as our understanding progressed, we found those atoms are made up of smaller units, neutrons, protons, electrons. And then there are subatomic particles. And if you condensed all of it and removed all the space that's within this substance you find that I'm just a fraction of what you see standing here. And therefore, contrary to what my wife says, I do not need to go on a diet. Voltaire spent his life attempting to disprove the existence of God. And as I said earlier, he was embarrassed by a simple watch. Now, why? Because in his wildest imaginations, he could not conceive of a watch that exists without a watchmaker. And yet he so desperately wanted there to be no watchmaker. And so he died in denial. We live in a universe that's governed by intricate, specific laws. And Voltaire was saying that this universe cannot be conceived as existing apart from a creator, yet he denied that very thing. Jesus Christ is the creator. He created all things out of nothing. And he also created all things, third point in your first major point in the outline. He created them all instantaneously. John uses a tense for the verb were made. All things were made by him. That points to a specific point in time. And it's a different tense than the one used in verse 1 where he says, in the beginning was the word. 
He uses a tense there that means Christ continually was. He was continually existing. But here he says that at a specific point in time, he made all things. He created instantaneously at a point in time. We cannot say that matter has eternally existed because he created all things out of nothing. Nor can we say that he utilized billions of years of time plus chance in order to get us where we are, as many want to say. He created instantaneously. Notice the last part of the verse. It sounds redundant, but it's making a very important point. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And God is saying here that he created all things without exception. Without him, nothing was made. Now, notice the last four words that has been made. In other words, all things that possess the quality of madeness were made by Jesus. And there are no exceptions. Now, think about it. If Jesus created all things that are created and there are no exceptions, Could Jesus be a created being himself? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. John could not make it clearer that Jesus Christ is before all things that were created and therefore he himself was not created. It's a logical impossibility. And John has already clued us into That fact in verse number one, where he said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was who? God. He's not a created being. He's existed from all eternity as God. And so let's make it more personal now. What does it matter then that he created all things? Well, it matters because it means he created you. And he created me. And so Jesus is not only the creator, but because Jesus is the creator, he is our Lord. He's your Lord. And he's my Lord. And in our remaining time, I want to look at the points that we have for you in your outline. The implications of the fact that Jesus is indeed the creator. And therefore our Lord. We've looked at the biblical data that Jesus created the universe. The implication of that is... Of that is that as creator, Jesus Christ is God. And verse one is designed to take our thoughts back to Genesis chapter one, the very first verse in your Bible, which says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John tells us that Jesus Christ created all things. Now, if Genesis one says God created and John one, three tells us Jesus created, what else can we conclude except Jesus is God? And what are the implications then of that? It means he is the object of our faith. We must believe in him. People say all the time, I believe in God. I hear people say very often, some of you may say of relatives who in their lives have no acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, but he believes. What does that mean? Believes what? Believes who? Notice what the Bible says. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
And many people are not even as smart as the demons. Even the demons know enough about God to tremble when they think about it. It's of no value to say, I believe in God and therefore I rest my hope on that belief. There's someone or something out there. Everybody, even the vilest atheist, believes deep within that there is someone or something out there. But know this, because he's the creator, we must, we must believe in him, the intelligent designer. It does no good to depend on the basic knowledge that there's a God. There's no one who's ever seen the night sky studded with the brilliance of thousands of points of light that has not known within the deep recesses of his soul that this watch cannot exist without a watchmaker. Isn't that true? The fact that he exists is basic knowledge found in nature and in what we call general revelation. God just generally making his existence known. But that revelation is limited. You cannot stake your eternity on the fact that you believe God exists. Everybody knows that, even if they deny it. That kind of revelation can never tell you who that God is or what that God is like. And that's why God sent His Son. As we saw last week, John chapter 1 and verse 1 calls Him the Logos, the Word, His divine communication to us. We need more than what we see in the skies. We need a Word from God to tell us who He is, what He's like, and Jesus Christ is that Word. Within the pages of the Bible, we have an account of Jesus' life and Jesus' work. That's called special revelation as opposed to just general revelation. And this book tells us that believing in God is insufficient. Jesus Christ is your creator. He's the one in whom you must put your trust. We cannot approach Jesus Christ with selective faith saying, I'll believe some things about him, but I can't accept this notion that he's my creator. You can't say, I'll be a Christian, but I'll believe I'm here as a product of time and of chance. Have you ever considered the fact that creation and Jesus Christ as a creator is foundational to everything else Christianity teaches? Let me offer three illustrations of that. To reject the account of creation is to deny the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus walked the earth, he quoted Genesis and he made it clear that he believed it. Secondly, to reject the account of creation is to eliminate the purpose for which Jesus died. Jesus died to deal with our sin. And where do we find, by the way, the origin of sin? Genesis chapter 3, we're told that through the first two persons that God made, Adam and Eve, sin came into the world. And because of that, we all suffer From a congenital malady called sin, everyone is born a sinner. It all goes back to the creation account of Genesis. If you refuse to believe it, you're wiping away the very purpose for which Jesus Christ died. Thirdly, if that's the case, then you have to also reject the value of his life and make it utterly meaningless. Because in Romans chapter 5, Paul, who wrote that book in your New Testament, compared what Jesus has done for us with what Adam did to us. And he summed it up in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 this way. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. 
so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. If you say, I don't believe there was an Adam and Eve, I believe we're the products of time and chance. If you believe that our ancestors oozed out of some pool and over a period of millions of years we learned to walk upright and there's no literal fact to the creation account in Genesis, then you've rendered the value of the life of Jesus Christ meaningless. The Lord Jesus, because he is creator, must be the object of our faith. It means this as well, to fail to believe, unbelief is without excuse. It's inexcusable. Notice what the Bible says. The wrath of God is being revealed, being made known from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, notice this phrase, they suppress the truth. They hold down what they know because they don't like it. They suppress the truth. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. And we read verse 20 a bit ago. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. But now notice the last phrase. So that men are without excuse. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. And through him, that universe, the universe that he has made, you've received. We have all received enough truth, enough revelation to condemn us for failing to seek the identity of the one who designed all this. But there is a way out. If you turn to Jesus Christ, God's special revelation, and you trust what he has done for you, then you establish a relationship with the God who has made you for time and for eternity. There are two more implications of the fact that Jesus is the creator. And therefore, our God, not only is he the object of our faith, but notice he's sovereign then over his world. It means he owns his universe. That's why the psalmist said this. There's the rest of that verse that I was reading that you were looking for. There it is. The psalmist said this. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I, God, were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and all that's in it. Years ago, a preacher named S.M. Lockridge preached a powerful message on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in it, he said this, he did not place his signature in the sunset, but he's the owner. He did not carve his initials in the sides of the mountain, but he's still the owner. He did not take out a copyright on the songs he gave the birds to sing, but he's the owner. And his point is well taken. As creator, who is Lord over his universe, his title deed stretches across the vast expanse of his universe. He owns every inch of it, including you and including me. We may resist that fact, but God will exercise his rights of ownership by doing with his creation as he pleases, because he owns it. The fundamental problem with mankind is today, as it has been since Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of history. Since the day that Adam took of the fruit in the garden, the fundamental problem is that every man and woman ever born has vainly tried to challenge God's right to ownership. 
And so the poet Henley expressed that rebellion for many when he said, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. God, you will not own me. That's why in your New Testament, Paul asked the question, who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? He made it. He owns it. He can do with it as he will. It means he's the master of his universe as well. That's why we call him Lord. There's coming a day, friends, when every created being will acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of his universe. That he's the absolute owner and he's the master over all creation. That right is his because of who he is and because he died in our place, paying the penalty of our sin, and he was raised from the dead. And that's why the Bible says this. God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He's not just talking about Christians bowing their knee. Because he says in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every human being ever born, every angel of heaven, every demon of hell will one day be compelled to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is sovereign Lord. But here's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian acknowledgement of that fact. The Christian has been changed so that he delights to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And one day through clenched teeth, those who rebel against their creator will be forced to acknowledge that. Here's the third and final implication of the fact that Jesus is the intelligent desire. It means he is really the only source of meaning in this life. So let me ask you as we conclude, what are you living for? It's a question that has implications for purpose and meaning. Most of you know that I worked in the workaday world, like all of you have to do, for 20 years in the computer field. And I found as I just talked to people out in the everyday world that most people were living for the weekend, they were living for pleasure. If you ask young people what they're living for, you'll find that they're living for the day they get their driver's license. And after that, they're living for their wedding day. And after that, they're living for the birth of their first child. Not long after that, they're living for the day when that child leaves. They're living for career, living for retirement. What does it all mean? Where's the value? What is the significance? You say, well, I want to provide for my family so my children have opportunities for a good education. Why? Well, so that they'll get good jobs. Why is that? Well, so they can provide for their families. Well, why is that? So they can get a good education. Here we go. We're in an endless cycle. And if Jesus Christ is not our creator, where does it all end? And what is the value of all of it? And friends, when the sun novas and the universe as we know it is black, if there is no God, what does it all matter? 
Our young people understand this better than most of us. That's why our culture and our schools are in such a mess. Because we taught them there ain't no creator. And now we got people living that way. And we should not be surprised. The world was intelligently designed, but there's an intelligent designer. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? The Bible tells us that he came for the purpose of establishing that broken relationship between the creator and the creature, restoring that relationship with himself. The Bible says that Christ died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We're going to bow before the creator in just a moment. Those of you that have come to God through Jesus Christ and what he has done. Let's thank him. Let's acknowledge him as our creator. Let's bow before him with our hearts as our Lord and our master, gratefully submitting to his leadership. But perhaps you're here and you say, you know what, I never, I've never done that. In fact, I'm the guy you were talking about that says, I believe. I believe there's something out there. This is the first time I've heard his identity. It's Jesus Christ. He is the one with whom you have to reckon. And we invite you. More importantly, he invites you. Come to him. How do I do that? We're going to bow in just a moment. Do you believe these things? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin? Do you want to follow his way rather than your way, which is, after all, the fundamental problem? Repent of your sin. I give my life to you, Lord. Then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray, and you can do business with God. You can pray to him in your own words, from your heart to God, a prayer along these lines. You say, I've never prayed before. There's no formula. You pour out your heart to God, and you say, Lord, I've recognized that you're my creator. You're my savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I submit myself to you. I want to learn of you, and I will go the direction you tell me to go. Take me and save me. He promises he'll do that. Let's bow together. I'm going to pray in just a moment as you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And I would just ask that Christians, if you've come to Jesus, thank Him. If you're one who says, this is new to me, but I, I know this is what I need. I know that Jesus is my Creator. I know that He's my Savior. Then you receive Him right now. And I ask you, if you do that, let me know. Let me know before you leave today. And then I want to get with you and talk to you about your first steps in the new direction that is this new life in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to gather as your people, to sing praise to you, to look into the pages of your word, to be reminded of the fact that this world is not only designed, but you're the designer. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God But even as God came and humbled himself as man, the God-man, to do for me, do for us what we could not do for ourselves, we thank you for the salvation that he secured for us on the cross of Calvary. And I thank you, Lord, that it's made a difference in so many lives represented here. And I pray that it is making a difference in the lives of some for the first time right now. 
I ask you to draw men and women to yourself so that their lives and their lips are turned then from serving themselves to serving the one who died for them and was raised so that they too can join this happy group of people, this joyful group of people who love to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.